Thanks, Kendra and the worship team, just for leading us. And um, making me choke up before. <laughs> We're going to pray together. Father, as the world's light just seems to fail over and over and over again, uh, this morning we seek the presence of your light that never fails. And as our spirits seem to tire sometimes and grow heavy, uh, we want to commit our souls again, again to you this morning, knowing that you are always keeping watch over us, even when we feel helpless. We rely on your love, the only constant that we can really depend on. And as we look back over the week, we remember with some bitterness and sorrow some of the duties that we may have shirked or the harsh words that we may have spoken or unfit thoughts that we have kept in our heads. But we also remember the God who saved us and redeemed us. We remember the beauties of the world, the sweetness of kindness that has come our way, the work you've enabled us to do, and the love and the friendships that you've brought into our lives. We're also thankful for the restoration and the forgiveness that comes our way that we don't deserve. And we rejoice and are thankful for your love and care, for our continued fellowship with you and with each other. We are thankful that we always seem to have plenty. We always seem to have shelter. and know that this is rare for just an awful lot of people. Again, Father, we are thankful for the light that never fades. As the light comes through the windows in our homes and in our churches, that we open the windows of our heart so that you can flood our souls with your presence. Father, we plead with you this morning that you let no corner go unlit. Let there be nothing within us to darken the brightness of your day. And Father, we ask that you take your word this morning and use it in our lives. Transform us and teach us. In the name of Jesus, amen. I think we're supposed to be back here somewhere. Yeah. We up there yet? Almost got it. Great, thanks. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate you guys. Unsung heroes back there. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much. There we go. Uh, in 1962, that was the year I started kindergarten. I'm sure you're happy to know that. Happy to know that. Um, it, was at a, it was at a local church, our local church in town, because back then in 1962, kindergarten wasn't mandatory. At least it wasn't in Texas. I don't know about other places. And uh, I lived next door to my Aunt Millie and Uncle James, and they had a daughter, my cousin Terry, who we were the same age, and we were inseparable. And um, I remember my mom and Aunt Millie taking us to uh, kindergarten at this lo the local church. Uh, Mrs. Cl Mrs. Click was the teacher. I still remember that. And I remember her teaching a bunch about the rules about the class, and then she taught us about birds. And uh, it's, it's, it was fun, and Sunday school was much the same way. We kind of colored, played with Play-Doh. First grade, things changed. We, we moved to a new neighborhood, and uh, we started, a new, started attending a brand new church that started in that neighborhood, Lake Highlands Methodist. 
And uh, Sunday school suddenly changed. It wasn't just playing with Play-Doh anymore. We actually had to learn things. And Mr. Hines was our Sunday school teacher for years. And we went to class. We memorized the Beatitudes. We memorized the Ten Commandments. We memorized the book of the Bible. And it was Sunday school. That's the way it was. And um, <clears throat> then we'd go to church. And it was a new church, so it was kind of a classroom look in any way. Um, and then we would sing some songs, listen to the choir. And then the preacher would give a lesson, another lesson. And I remember getting really good sitting in those it were metal chairs. Remember those metal chairs? And we sat in those metal chairs and I got really good at counting the light fixtures and counting which chairs had blue tags and which ones had green tags on the back. And, but uh, I also look forward to Communion Sunday for two reasons. One, we got to get out of those metal chairs and move around. And the other reason is the sermon was going to be shorter. Don't count on it here. But... <laughs> But I just remember learning a lot. Then you get to sixth grade, and uh, we go through confirmation. And you learn creeds. You learn how to be a good Methodist. And uh, it's also another, another class. And then you get into youth group. And once you get out of confirmation, you're an official member of the, um, of the church. We even had youth representatives on the administrative board. And what my point is that we didn't have... Christian schools back then. We had a Catholic school uh, really close by, and with the school, we always felt sorry for the kids over there because they had to wear uniforms and, you know, all those mean nuns in there, you know, teaching and stuff. Uh, but the education was done in the church. I mean, we, it was an education. In fact, Methodists, if you grew up in a Methodist church, education was a priority in the church. Uh, the whole name, Methodist, comes from people who made fun of John Wesley's groups because they were very methodical in their learning and their teaching. And so they called them Methodists, and the name just kind of stuck. That's the way it was. Uh, we, we learned. That's a, it was a class. It was study. It was, uh, you just were supposed to be educated. For some reason, we don't like to, Christians today don't like to refer to Jesus as a teacher. But uh, according to Mark Lane's commentary on the book of Mark, he says that uh, Jesus is addressed 90 times in the four Gospels, 60 of those times he is addressed as a teacher, teacher or master teacher or rabbi. And uh, he says today that we don't like to use that word because, oh, he's so much more than a teacher of a moral system or something, which I agree. He is. He is more than that. He is a savior. He is our savior that only he could do. He did only what, what uh, the second person of the Trinity could do. But that misses the point. He is a teacher. And we are to learn from him. He is a, he was a good Jewish rabbi, and he is a good Jewish rabbi. And we can talk about the theology of salvation and, so, you know, and, and uh, redemption and forgiveness and all those kinds of things, but 60 out of 90 times he's addressed as a teacher. And that means we need to learn from him. We need to listen to what he says. We need to obey what he says. We need to take his wisdom we embrace the world with his wisdom and live like live his wisdom in the world we can't just say okay yeah we're saved and then go off and and yeah these things are good the sermon on the mount's good until it doesn't work anymore and then we're going to do something else which is you laugh but that's what we do we see we get to a point where we say oh yeah that kindness thing that turn the other cheek thing you know works for the most of the time but when it doesn't we leave it and it becomes a secondary virtue instead of a primary virtue 
Well, Mark talks to, tells us all through those first three chapters, he's always, always teaching. He's teaching at the Sea of Galilee. He's going to the synagogue. He teaches. He's in a house, and he's teaching. He's in the wilderness, and he's teaching. But Mark doesn't tell us a lot about the content of that teaching until we get to Mark chapter 4. And we have one of the longer sermons from Jesus in Mark chapter 4. And uh, one of the parables that we looked at last week, the parable of the sower. And he says everything else is based on this parable of the sower. If you're not going to understand that one, you're not going to understand anything. So we need to understand the basic, the, the truth of the, of the parable of the sower, where he scatters seeds. Remember this, if you haven't read it in a while. He scatters some seeds, the farmer scatters some seeds, and some of it falls by the path and is immediately eaten by birds. And he says that's like Satan come along and snatching the, snatching the word away. Uh, some of the seeds fall on rocky soil, and they kind of spring up, but they don't really have good roots. And so when the pressure comes and the suns come and the heat comes, they start to wilt. And then there's other seeds that fall among the thorns, and they also spring up, but then all the, ch the cares of the world, and he talks about wealth and other things. I love that, it's wealth and other things. In other words, anything can take the place of the gospel in our lives, just about anything. And he says that comes along and chokes them out. But then some seed falls on good soil, and it produces fruit. It produces a harvest 30, 60, 100 times of what one seed produced. And he says, if you don't understand that, you're not going to understand anything else I say. Well, that's what we looked at last week. And this, 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 this morning, we want to look at the second half of that sermon. And basically what he's doing is he's, he's um, uh, substantiating and he's, he's explaining this, this sermon of the sower. And it's kind of um, the way it's looked. It looks like it's not all happening in one sermon. It's not like Jesus stood up and did, said all these things at once. It looks like the sermon of the soul, I mean, the parable of the sower was told. And then Mark kind of collected other teachings and other parables and brought them together. And which is typical of what ancient authors did. I mean, parchment was really expensive. And so he would collect his material and then arrange it according to his purpose. And so what we have in the second half, beginning in verse 21, is this, this other part of the sermon of enhancing and, and substantiating the parable of the sower. And what he's getting at here, I believe, is this in this last half. As he talks about the purpose, he talks about the goal, the end of these messages, the end of what Jesus came for, what, what his work is. But he also talks about the means, the way it's going to happen. And if I were to boil down this whole message, this second half of the sermon, it would be this, that the means and the end must cohere. We have to keep the means and the ends in harmony. We can't say, okay, this is the goal, and then we come at it at, from an end around or from the back door into that to reach that goal. No, the objective and the means must cohere. They must be in harmony with each other. And we can say, this is the goal, but we're going to do it another way. So he tells us what this, what this is. <clears throat> the objective is, is found in these first few verses where there's got two pairs of proverbial sayings. And they're kind of difficult to understand, but they're, they're kind of proverbs, but they're built together. And they're connected by this clause called, a, in order that. And he talks out with this, first of all, this absurdity of having a lamp, and you don't nobody takes a lamp and puts it into a pot, under a pot, that you measure a bushel with. 
And even sillier, nobody takes a lamp and sticks it under their bed. That's dumb. That's absurd. But, he says, you take a lamp and you put it on a lampstand so that everybody can see. And he says, the lamp comes. The way that's phrased in the Greek is just the lamp comes. And I am convinced that Jesus is talking about himself. He is the lamp. The lamp has come, and you don't put a lamp under the bed. You don't put a lamp under the bushel pot. You put the lamp on a lampstand. But then he goes on to say, it's hidden, and it's secret, so that it will be revealed. And that, at first, doesn't make sense. But I think what he's saying is that by necessity, it has to be kind of on the underground right now. This is only temporary. This is an exception. This is what you, not, you don't normally do this, but because the situation demands it, it's kind of hidden. It kind of goes underground right now, but he says it will be revealed fully so that we see the light. And I'm convinced that what Jesus is talking about here is the crucifixion and the resurrection. That this light, this lamp is part of this, this process so Jesus can establish his ministry, his teaching, his healing, his, his care for people. And it's kind of on the, on the down low a little bit, but it'll all come clear at the crucifixion, at the cross, and the resurrection. It will become clear. And then he says, if you've got ears, listen. And then he goes on to the next proverb, the next saying, but he then begins that with a very, a very unusual phrase that if, you've got, if you ought to pay attention to what you're listening to. Literally, it says, I love this in Greek, I love what it says, it says, watch what you're listening to. <laughs> Look at what you're listening to. In other words, pay attention to what you're listening to. This is serious business. And he says, the light's out there, but it still demands a response from us. And he says how we respond will determine how we experience it. That those two are connected. Yes, God will, will prevail. He will rise from the dead. Yes, the gospel will go out. But it still comes down to every woman and every man making a decision of how they were going to receive it. That's the parable of the sower. How are you going to receive this? The light is going to shine the word will be heard. It will be victorious. But how do we respond? And he basically says, literally, the measure is with what you measure. And it's really kind of confusing. And what I think he's saying there is the extent to how you experience the kingdom of God will depend on how much you experience, how much you receive the kingdom of God. In other words, we can walk through trusting a little bit and we can, we can experience it, but... But the more we trust, the more we receive, the more we will experience the forgiveness, the redemption, the transformation. It will, it will manifest in our lives. The measure you have is the measure you will be measured with or the measure you measure with. It's a little bit difficult to translate. But the idea, I believe, is just that, that this is the extent that he is our rabbi and he is our savior. And yes, he is our Savior, but depending on how much of that teaching we take in will depend on how much we experience the fruit of the kingdom of God now. I don't know if that makes sense or not, but it's hard to explain, but I think what we receive will determine what we experience. And then he goes on to take two more parables. 
in the last thing, and there are more, more parables about seeds. And I think this is where we get into the means. This is how it's going to happen. He gives us two parables of patience and hope, and I would add on there maybe even surprise, that he surprises us with these things. And the first one is he, he talks about a farmer going out and spreading the seeds everywhere, and they, he, goes, and he goes to bed, and he wakes up in the morning, he goes to bed, wakes up in the morning, sleep night, day and night, day and night, and then suddenly these things start sprouting, and he doesn't know how. It just does. It just happens. It's not that he ignored it, but to explain exactly how it sprouts, he doesn't know. And I actually have, in another life, <laughs> a life a long time ago, I actually have a biology degree. And uh, I can tell you, or we could, or I used to, could tell you how things, these things happened, but it doesn't tell me how life is created. It doesn't tell me exactly how these things sprout up. And I, I love, one of the things I love growing in my beds are garlic because it's so easy. Uh, I can stick these little clothes down in the dirt while I'm, everything else, I'm in, the, in October, November, and I'm tearing the, the rest of the stuff out, the rest of the plants out, so it's becoming all bearing, and all of a sudden these green shoots start coming up. Don't know how. I didn't do anything to cause it. It just did. It just happened. And it's really, really kind of fun to watch these things just start to come up. To me, this is probably one of the best pictures of the spiritual life that we plant the seed where we receive the seed and we don't have anything to do. God causes the growth. The Holy Spirit causes the growth. But that doesn't mean we're just sitting back on our lazy boy watching football. It means we are also doing other things. We're doing other things to prepare the soil. And to me, this is the spiritual life. That the, the, the seed needs sun and it needs rain. And we put it in a place to where we can receive the sun and the rain. And I kind of equate that to, to the Word of God and prayer. Two essentials that Christians cannot live without. Prayer, prayer and the Word of God. Those two things. But every now and then we need other things. And so I've got a, uh, I don't have a shed, I have a garage of, of tools that help. Fertilizers and hoes and trowels and gloves, and clippers, and things like that, that I can use. And I consider, though, I call those, those are the spiritual disciplines. Prayer and Bible, you need. They're essential. But then we do some things to make that happen a little bit better. We do some things to prune. We do some things to maybe hold some weeds out, to remove those thorns, uh, things like that. So we practice these disciplines, like like silence and solitude and fasting or pilgrimage or tithing or, or, um, or service, service, anonymous service, any of, these, any of these, um, these disciplines that we need every now and then, but not all the time we practice. And this thing grows and grows. And so not only is this a parable of, of, of means and patience, it's also a parable of hope, of certainty, because the harvest will come because God does it he does it and the growth happens and the harvest is great and he says then it's ready to collect the fruit or collect the grain or pick the corn or whatever it is but he does it he does it and that's certain 
And that's the hope. And then he goes on to tell you one more parable. And that's that parable of that little mustard seed. And he takes this tiny, tiny mustard seed, and he says, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. It looks like a little mustard seed. And people must be thinking, oh, great. That's supposed to take over the Roman Empire? Is that what you're thinking? And he says, but you take that little bitty mustard seed, the smallest seed, the smallest sprout in the forest, and you put it in the dirt, and it grows to be this big, big tree, this big bush. Bush that's so big that the birds flock to it. A bush so big that people will flock to it. And they will build their nest in it. And they will look for refuge in it. And they will find safety in this thing. And that's the kingdom of God. And little by little, throughout history, this begins to take over. Look at it today. Which one lasted, the church or the Roman Empire? And yes, it's slow. And yes, there is this, there's this time lapse between planting the seed and the guy going to bed every night and getting up every day and going to bed every night and going to bed and getting up every day. And then it's slow. It is time, but it will happen. And this thing is beyond, it goes beyond the kingdoms of the world. It goes beyond that in the glory of even the mightiest kingdoms. And he says, that day is coming. In other words, we need to let God do what's his to do, and we do what is ours to do. The means and the end must cohere. We may want to manipulate that kingdom. We may want to cause it ourselves. But there are things we can do. But basically, it's God's work, and we've got to have the patience to do it. And we also have to have the hope and the certainty that it will happen. And we have to make sure our means matches the ends. The way we do it matches the objective. One of the best examples that I can think of of that is the Civil Rights Movement back in the 60s. And I'm old enough to remember all that. I lived through it in the South. It was probably one of the biggest and most significant social changes in American history. And if you remember a guy named Bull Connor who fought the civil rights protesters. You had, you had the nonviolent Martin Luther King, John Lewis, Rosa Parks, all these people. And you remember Bull Connor would have these, these dogs and these fire hoses that he would attack them with. And yet the civil rights movement was victorious. Why? Because they had meaner dogs? Bigger fire hoses? No, they had love, that's right. They did it according to what the Bible says. And they won the victory. Or they're winning the victory. They did it the way Jesus told them. The objective was in coherence with the means. And that's how they did it. Today, we, we still think that freedom and healing can come by power. That if we can just elect the right people and the right power, then we will get there. Or some people will be like, that, that the, freely, the, the healing and the freedom will come if we just withdraw and make this sort of utopian people of circle the wagons with just Christians, and sooner or later we will evolve into this utopia civilization. 
Or other people just think, well, I'm just going to stay quiet and I'm just going to wait till I get evacuated from this place. That's not the means. The seed grows and it becomes a refuge, a place of safety where we can build nests in it and get safety from the shade and comfort from the shade. And if I have one prayer for Shepherd of the Valley, it's that Shepherd of the Valley will be like the mustard plant that will be a place of refuge, a place of safety, a place where people can come and build their nest in the shade of the plant. That's the place I want for Shepherd of the Valley, that it's a place of safety and acceptance and assimilation. He ends the book, or he ends the, 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 the sermon, sorry, um, telling the truth on the slant. And he kind of explains the parables. Uh, telling the truth on the slant is a phrase by Emily Dickinson. Some of you may know that. She wrote a poem that says, uh, uh, Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Success is circuit lies, too bright for our infirm delight, the truth's superb surprise. As lightning in the children's eased with explanation, kid, the truth must dazzle gradually or every man be blind. And what she means by that is that we don't always tell the truth head on, hit people over the head with it, and just shout them into the truth. Sometimes we have to do it sort of indirectly. And I think that's what Mark is getting at here when he describes Jesus. He's telling these parables, and he's telling that just so that just it says that to the point of their, will, or their, their ability to understand. In other words, he's taking the truth and he's saying, just as far as, you're, as far as you're prepared right now, this is what I'm going to tell you, that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. For those disciples who kind of are in on the game right now and they kind of know, he's saying, he's saying okay, this is what it really means. And remember, the whole purpose of Mark is to write these people in Rome, these new disciples, this early Christian church in Rome, and the readers in the 21st century, us, calling us to be disciples of Jesus Christ. And he's saying right now he's telling the truth on the slant as far as they can handle it. And it will get further and further and further until the resurrection. I think he knows, Jesus knows, that if he were to come and hit them over the head with the truth straight on, the, the way, the way they, that, he, that it's clear to the disciples, one, he might have been executed too early. Or two, he would have forced them to make a decision right then and there and they just weren't ready. To follow him or execute him, they might have decided to execute. But he's telling the truth on the slant. He's telling them in parables to get them ready. The means and the end must cohere. The, the objectives and the method must be in harmony with each other. Uh, I don't know if you recognize the name Peter, uh, Peter McIndo. Uh, he's a guy who... Um, gathered a few friends around and decided to play a role for four years, basically. His life was going to be an act for four years. And what he wanted to do was to prove how easy it is to buy into conspiracy theories. And so he invented a conspiracy, and he had these friends, and they recruited a few other hundred people. And, and uh, it got to the point where their last rally in New York City drew 5,000 people. And uh, his... Uh, conspiracy with that birds aren't real and according to the story that they they fabricated I don't know you may have heard this or not but the story that they fabricated was that 
between 1969 and 2001, the American government uh, got on this campaign to slaughter billions of birds, that they dropped poison, uh, viruses, bacteria and stuff out of the airplanes to kill all these birds. Why? So they could replace them with mechanical birds to spy on us. And so they, could, they replaced them with these, these mechanical birds. They wanted to keep us safe. So they, they, they developed these birds, and, and the, the idea was that they would sit on their, the power line. When you see birds perched on the power lines, they're recharging their batteries, okay? And, uh, and the, the poop that's on your car, those are tracking devices. So that, that was it. And they would even come up with, bu with bumper stickers, one that says, uh, if, if it flies, it spies. And the other was, was bird watching goes both ways. And, so they uh, bought billboards, and they came up with designs. I mean, they said, there's a pigeon. He says, really, how many of you have seen a baby pigeon? You know, that proves my point. None of us have seen a baby pigeon, so they're all, they're all machines. So he finally comes clean four years later. But he had interviews on news, news cable channels and news channels and mainly, uh, mainstream news. He, he got interviewed, and... And it just kind of spread. And uh, he finally came clean uh, after four years and told him that it was all a hoax. That he wanted to say, I could take the same arguments used for some conspiracy theories and apply them to something as ridiculous as this, and people would believe it. But he said, what I didn't count on was this. He said, what, I would drive my van up at some town and, and start this kind of movement and things and stuff. And he said, people would come to me angry with disdain on their face and start yelling at him that he was and condemning and judging him and telling him that he was perverse he was an idiot uh it's people like you that make this country horrible uh you are you're 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 foolish and you're leading people down the path and all this kind of stuff and he said what happened was was really strange is that i dug my heels in and i started defending the position that birds aren't real to where I just about believed it myself. And he said the, the, object, the objective that they were trying to reach was that I would abandon this ideal and accept the truth. But what happened was just the opposite. I started believing what I knew was a hoax because I invented it. And he said it just made me realize what we're doing when we do that. That when we go and we try to beat people over the head, or when we go and we try, and I, I'm trying to apply this to the church, that when we use another method besides Jesus' method, another means besides his means, and we try to beat people over the head, or we call them perverse, or we call them uh, evil, and they're, and they're awful, and they're terrible, and we start judging them and condemning them, what are they going to do? They're going to dig their heels in. And he said, we always seem to start at trying to change the belief before we get them to belong. He says, what if we got it backwards? That we do the belonging first. Because everybody wants to belong. Everybody wants to have purpose in their life. Everybody wants to be with somebody at the, where, a place where it's safe. Everybody wants to be with a place that, where they can be themselves and be more like themselves just like every single person in this room has that desire. Every human being has that desire. And 
when we go at it head on and call them perverse and call them all kinds of names and how evil they are and you're ruining this country and da-da-da-da-da, what are they going to do? They're going to dig their heels in and try to look for a place where they feel at home and feel accepted. And I think we need to adapt this. To me, it's a real-life example of what Jesus is trying to say here, that the seeds need to be planted. We grow in the kingdom, a kingdom that, that is done, that is proclaimed by Jesus himself, where everything else is underneath that, comes, from, comes part of that, and we foster belonging and accepting and then work on the belief and a place where it feels safe. So following Rabbi Jesus, I'm just going to mention a quick, some quick applications here. The end and the means must cohere. Our accessibility of life in the kingdom of God is the message of Jesus, his deeds and his words. We follow his wisdom. And underneath all of that, all the deeds and his words, that's where we find forgiveness. That's where we find redemption. That's where we find transformation and peace and joy of the Holy Spirit. That's where, that's where society is transformed. We see the history developing and evolving and becoming everlasting life. All of it is through the message of Jesus, his deeds and his words. You don't make God's kingdom, you receive it. We can't make God's kingdom anywhere. We can't do the, pull the right levers, elect the right people, do all this stuff just to, because we're going to try to create God's kingdom. We can't do it. We receive it. We receive it as the seed planted in our hearts. Set aside the seemingly urgent and focus on the important. In other words, pay attention to what you hear. You hear Jesus teaching, you pay attention to it. This takes on a very serious tone here of paying attention to what Jesus says. The kingdom provides safety and rest for other prioritized belonging. Our church should be a place to provide safety and rest for others, regardless of who you are, regardless of what you've done. And the kingdom of God does not have the social strategy. The kingdom is the social strategy. And what I mean by that is a lot of times we think of our, the church or the kingdom, that we've got to have this social strategy to fix things. In our, but what Jesus is saying here is the kingdom is the social strategy. We are the social strategy. In other words, our means and our ends have to cohere. We have to show the world what the world could be what the world could look like. We are the social strategy. So I think this finish of this sermon is that we take Rabbi Jesus seriously. He is our Savior. He has died for our sins. He rose from the dead, but he's also a really fine Jewish teacher. And we need to take that wisdom and embrace the world with it. We're going to celebrate communion this morning to do that. And I always think it's very appropriate that we celebrate communion um, when we have a potluck.
because that's the way the first Corinthians did it. They would celebrate communion and then share a meal together. So we're going to um, have communion, and we're going to pass it out so you can remain seated. And uh, then I want to encourage you to stay around to eat, eat lunch with us. And I uh, would like to, like to encourage you to maybe sit at a table with people you don't know. That might help. And um, uh, then we will in, enjoy the meal. 